0: Well, there's a whole genre of literature and movies um, that have an overarching plot line of this. The guy beats an enemy and then gets the girl. He beats the enemy, then gets the girl. Robin Hood beats the king and gets the princess. Braveheart, William Wallace beats the English and then gets the princess. The Princess Bride, Wesley beats. The king and rescues Buttercup. Spider Man beats the enemy, the green goblin, Dr. Octopus, Sandman, Mysterio, Vulture, and gets the girl. Give me some other examples. Give me like two or three. Raise your hand. You're like, this is my kind of thing. Okay, come on. Jesus. Jesus, yes, that's kind of what we're going to get to in Revelation 19. That's kind of where I'm going. Eragor and and Erwin. Good. Okay, one more. I couldn't hear you. King Arthur. Okay, I don't really know that tale well enough. Guinevere? Is that who he gets? Okay, good. Awesome. That just came from somewhere in my brain, from like 11th grade English class or something. That's awesome. Well, today we are going to find that these stories are just merely a foreshadow of what someone yelled out, Jesus. Revelation chapter 19, if you'll turn there, that's going to be our main text today. Now, we saw in Revelation 17 the evil girl, the prostitute Babylon, was drunk on the blood of the saints, seducing all peoples. She is then taken down by the military oppression of the beast which she once rode. Then, Revelation 18 shows that's actually God doing the taking down. And the kings and the merchants and the shipmasters are all crying. They are wailing. They are mourning because they received wealth and prosperity. And when Babylon fell, so did they. And so did their wealth and so did their prosperity. So we saw in chapter 18, them mourning. But we also saw in chapter 18, this calling out of God, calling out, crying out to uh, his people to come out of Babylon. Do not be seduced by her as well as rejoice in God crushing his enemies. Now in chapter 19, the rejoicing over Babylon's destruction continues. We kind of get a flavor of what's coming out of 18 into 19, and we see the guy beats the enemy, and he gets the girl. Jesus comes for his church. Look at Revelation 19, starting at verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice, of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Verse 4, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came the voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this: Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And the Lord blessed the reading and preaching of his word. Now, today I have something kind of unusual for us. It's a one-point sermon. One point. Normally it's two, three, four, something like that. Uh, every week the, whoever's preaching submits their sermon to one of the other elders and they review the sermon and then give feedback on the sermon because I would rather have feedback before the sermon rather than after the sermon. I'm like, that was horrible. You know, I would rather that come prior to know it's horrible than fix it before I proclaim it publicly. So I submitted my sermon to Samuel this week. He was the guy who was on a rotation of doing it. And so he went over my sermon. Then Wednesday or Thursday, he calls and says, this is, I think this is two sermons. I was like, no, it's not. I'm done. Like, I've finished the sermon, and I don't actually have time to work on splitting this. And he was like, no, I think it's really, like, you got to slow down here. There's too much here. You need to really dive in here. And I was like, Samuel, that's not a good idea. And so, so then, I think it was Thursday morning, I'm just praying and going over the message. And I was like, Samuel's right. He's right. And he's not here, so don't tell him I said that. But um, he's out backpacking right now. No, you can tell him I said that. And so one sermon. So really, today is part one, and next week's going to be part two of Revelation chapter 19. And what we're going to see today is this ultimate invitation. It is wedding time. The wedding is coming. Verse one through five, we find heaven erupting at the praise of God for destroying Babylon. The saints are crying out, many who have died at the hands of Babylon. Remember, Babylon, the prostitute, was drunk on their blood, it says. And they cry out in thanksgiving for God's justice and vindication. They exalt God's salvation, His glory, His power. God's judgment. judgments are true and just. Babylon has fallen. The seduction has been fully exposed. And those loyal to Babylon weep and wail. Verse 4 takes us back to the throne room with the 24 elders and the four living creatures doing what we see the 24 elders and the four living creatures do pretty much every time we see them in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 7 in the throne room. These elders and creatures are always worshiping God, for he is worthy of continual, nonstop worship. Many scholars think that verse 5 is actually Jesus speaking from the throne, Just praise our God, all you, his saints, you who fear him, small and great. Jesus does what he always does. He invites us, the saints, to the celebration. He invites us to join in the praise, both kings and peasants, rich and poor, men and women, white and black, nation after nation, gathering around the throne of Jesus, unified in worship. Friends, this is why we exist. This is why you are breathing right now. God is giving you life and breath that you may glorify him. We are to be a praising people that honor God. Verse 6 seems to then expand the gaze as a great multitude praises God. And this time it's not just a loud voice like verse 1 this time it says it's like a roar of many waters and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder. John wants us to like feel the force of this. This is rumbling in his chest. We, we know what this is like. Brooke flies her C-17 too low to the ground, right? You know the C-17s. Don't do this, Brooke. She's a pilot. And it's like, and like you just like you're in a conversation. You have to stop because it just you like feel the vibration of this plane flying low overhead, right? That force, that bass thumping, like a roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And what do the people say? What is this roar coming? What do they say? Verse six, uh, second part of verse six. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Friends, this is a staggering moment. This moment bursts forth with an understanding of anticipation. There has been a longing for this moment. In Genesis 1, God created mankind, male and female, in God's image and likeness to have dominion, to multiply, to rule the earth. Genesis 2, we have God walking Eve down the aisle to Adam. Started as one flesh as Eve came out of Adam. And then to continue as one flesh in their marriage, one flesh emotionally, spiritually, physically, and just functionally, this one flesh relationship of marriage. And in Genesis chapter 3, the one flesh is greatly damaged. The serpent deceives, the woman eats, the man advocates, the man blames, the woman blames, and there's enmity between them. What marriage was supposed to be is broken. And because of the curse, man often looks to the ground of his work as a place of fulfillment instead of looking to God. He abdicates leadership. He dominates with his leadership. The curse on man. The woman often looks to her husband as a place of fulfillment instead of to God. She strives with him and suffers from the pangs of childbirth. The curse for the woman Genesis 4 then just shows this expanding to all the world. Genesis 4, Cain's offspring, Lamech, boasts of having two wives, no longer the oneness. Genesis 13 and 20, Abraham acts as if Sarah is his sister to preserve their lives and breaking the oneness. If you fast forward throughout Genesis, you see marriage defiled over and over and over. Jacob with wives and servants. David committing adultery, Solomon's downfall. Ultimately, God's people are seen as an unfaithful spouse. Think Hosea and Gomer, God and his people. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people are adulterous. They're cheating on God. They await the bridegroom while trying to date other people. They hide their engagement ring as they flirt with the enemy. And fast forward to the New Testament, and we get more marriage language. We actually have Jesus, who is the bridegroom, come to seek and save the lost, to come for his bride. And he starts using wedding language and, and, and this language as he starts teaching. In fact, his first miracle is where? At a wedding. When John the Baptist's disciples start asking Jesus' disciples why they don't fast, Jesus responds this way. Luke five thirty four. Can you make wedding guests guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He is the bridegroom. In Matthew 22, verse 2, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gives a wedding feast for his son. Here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's getting ready to tell this parable about inviting people in. But it's like, if you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, you want to know the kingdom, it's like this wedding feast that's going to be thrown. It's a party that's going to be thrown for the son. John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, I go and prepare a place for you. That's marriage type language. In that culture, a betrothed man would prepare a place for his wife. And then the mystery of marriage gets clearer and clearer as we go into the New Testament. One of the clearest places is Ephesians chapter five. It says this, it should be on the screen. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as, get this, Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ, get this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his body loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, and this is quoting back to Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The mystery of marriage is not simply about a bride and a groom. It is about the bride and the groom Marriage is about the bride, the church, being rescued, cleansed, washed, nourished, cherished, and purified by the groom, Jesus Christ. Jesus laid down his life for his bride. Jesus ongoingly nourishes and cherishes his bride. Jesus holds fast to his bride. And what is the church to do? We're to respond. We're to respect. We're to submit to the husband, Jesus. It is with this understanding of marriage that we enter into Revelation 19. This is why the crowd is going wild. The wedding day is fast approaching. The long awaited union, the engagement period is almost over. I don't know how long you guys were engaged. Chris and I got uh, married pretty young. We were engaged for five months but that five months felt like 50 years. I I just remember like, is it time yet? Gosh, this is just taking forever. Five months felt like forever. Friends, the church has been engaged for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, God's people waiting for this day of the wedding. But this picture of Revelation 19 says that the invitations have been sent out the day is approaching quickly the wedding supper of the lamb awaits us and notice that we are invited to the wedding because of the groom's invitation his death and resurrection he brings us to himself in the original language it's an important part of the passage in verses seven and eight it can be translated as jesus clothing his bride or the bride clothing herself It's an interesting thing, and different versions kind of lean in different directions. And most scholars say, I think it's intentionally vague. Why? Because, yes, God clothes us, but we also clothe ourselves. What do I mean by that? God saves us, but then those who are saved keep working out their salvation with fear and trembling. It's not the works that save us, but those who are saved work. We have those righteous deeds like the passage says. So he clothes and we clothe. And you may wanna say, well, Mike, how do you know that to be true? Is there any other evidence in scripture? Well, we've said over and over in the book of Revelation, John's like a painter and he has a palette, a painter's palette. And what does he use for the colors of the portrait? What's on the painter's palette? Anybody? The Old Testament, thank you very much. You're doing great. Isaiah chapter 61. Now think about Revelation 19. And let's read Isaiah 61, 10 through 11. It should be on the screen. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest, with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. So God clothes with his garment of salvation. He clothes his bride, but also the bride adorns herself with jewels. God saves, and yet the bride wears the the good stuff and pretties herself up. Christ's church pretties herself up. How? Verse 8 of Revelation 19, "...the fine linen that she wears is the righteous deeds of the saints." She's wearing, she's saved by God, but she's putting on the righteous deeds of the saints. So friends, we are wearing the righteous deeds of the saints. That's a pretty picture. I can, use, I can normally not see that, but now that I have a screen, can we fix that? Thank you. And realms are really good too. Sign up for it. Um, we have the righteous deeds of the saints on us. Friends, when you think about the righteous deeds of the saints that you as a bride are clothed with, you might be tempted to think of your righteous deeds. But friends, this is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we are wearing the righteous deeds of all the saints. Those faithfully obeying are heroes of the faith. Now, my, my, especially my boys, some of my girls, like Jordan's and Kobe's and LeBron's, and if you want to get other names of shoes, they really enjoy those. I don't know if any of those guys are believers, but friends, we're going to be wearing the righteous deeds of the saints. We're going to be wearing Apostle Paul's and Augustine and Corey Tim Boone's and Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and Brother Andrew and Jim and Sharon Hawkins and Nathan Michelle Wingate and Bill and Marcella Jasons and Mr. Leroy's. You're going to have some awesome shoes. I want the Mr. Leroy shoes. Those are going to be cool. But we're going to be having the righteous deeds of the saints. We may even have the Nick Harris's, but it's not going to look like Alabama colors. Right, Nick? We were talking trash yesterday, and I'm a Tennessee fan and sulking today. (laughs) But friends, we are going to have the righteous deeds of the saints clothing us. We, the bride, are clothed empowered by Christ and his righteousness. Verse six then says this, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. The word blessed can be translated as happy. Elliot talked about that a few weeks ago. The word invited can be translated as called. So it could read, happier those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a happy bride. She is smiling brightly. She has white teeth. She is overjoyed. She is like loving the picture moment here. But this is also a called people of God. It's more than an invitation. It's calling us out of the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. It's doing what Ephesians 1 says that we are called and we are chosen and we are adopted in him before the foundations of the world. Life is completely changed for the bride of Christ. We have been rescued. The guy gets the girl. And friends, this picture of the happy bride gives us much to think about, about our stages of life, whether we're married or whether we are single. And let me just speak to those who are single for a second. If you are single and you are not thinking you're called to singleness for your whole life, you long for a spouse, this passage speaks to you. It says, yes, marriage is good, but only because it points to the ultimate marriage. There's a greater joy than getting married this side of eternity. And ultimately, lastingly, for this this mist of a vapor of this life, you're not missing out on anything you are going to get the best wedding. You're gonna get the best spouse. And you will have a wedding and be part of the wedding festivities where you are loved and cherished and nourished by the best spouse ever. And for you who are single, who feel called to singleness, this passage says that you will not always be single either. You will be experiencing that devoted life now, but it's to a future groom then. So we would encourage you, keep running hard after Christ and rejoice in Christ. Friends, remember that in the Bible, we go from physical to spiritual. As you go from Old Testament into the New Testament, you see the physical temple points us forward to a better temple, the spiritual temple. That's Christ. Remember, he says this temple you'll you'll destroy and in three days I'll raise it up. So who Jesus is as a temple and then who we are as a temple and then the future temple of the new heavens and new earth. We go from physical Israel and then pointing to the better Israel of the spiritual Israel of God's people. And singles note this, we go from the physical union of marriage and it points to a better, more satisfying union of the spiritual union of Christ with his bride. So there's a oneness, a unity, a love beyond any that the best marriages in this room could have. That is the marriage of Christ to His church. Friends, we've got to remember this. We've got to stay rooted here. Now for married folks, this passage gives us much application. For those who have good marriages and realize that, realize that Revelation 19 merely points to a better marriage, your love for your earthly spouse will not decrease in heaven, but your love for both your earthly spouse and your ultimate spouse will only increase. And the ultimate marriage of Christ in the church is a picture that you follow on this side of eternity. So we must marinate on Ephesians chapter 5. If you're a married person and you don't know Ephesians chapter 5, you don't know the game plan for your marriage. You need to spend time in Ephesians chapter five. So it tells husbands, husbands, consider how you're doing on laying down your life for your wife. How are you doing on loving her and cherishing her and nourishing her and washing her in the water of the word? Be the man that God called you to be. I was meeting with Terry Knipe earlier this week And he was just telling me, just kind of as a side note, how he's reading the Bible with his wife, Jan. Now, if you don't know, Terry, Jan is suffering of dementia and is quickly fading. So here's a man sitting beside his wife who may not fully understand and comprehend all that's going on. And he's reading God's word to her, washing her in the water of the word. Friends, that is is how you love your wife. You care for her, even if she's suffering, even if she can't give you anything back. You're giving, you're loving, you're laying down your life for your wife. And wives, Ephesians 5 speaks much to you, speaks of submission as a good and godly thing. It's not a curse word. It is not a submission ultimately unto your husband though is a submission unto the Lord your ultimate husband. I've used this illustration before because I steal it from Stephanie every time. I was talking to Stephanie Warren about how she thinks about submission one time, and she was talking about how she looks at Christopher, and she's called to submit to him, but over Christopher's shoulder is Jesus. And she's really not looking at Christopher. She's like, there's, there's Jesus over there. She's looking over his shoulder Because I'm going to submit and love Christopher, but ultimately I'm loving Jesus Christ and I'm submitting to Jesus Christ. Her main submission, and wives, your main submission in your marriage is is not to your husband, it's to Jesus. And because you love Jesus, you lean towards submission and honoring Jesus in that way and respecting your husband. Let me speak to those who have struggling marriages in the room. Maybe you feel like your marriage is on life support right now. Maybe your marriage is maybe not life support. Maybe that's too drastic, but it's just not as good as you think it should be. Friends, please know this. Your earthly spouse will never fulfill what only Jesus was meant to fulfill. Let me say that again. Your earthly spouse will never fulfill what only Jesus was meant to fulfill. Only Jesus never sinned. Only Jesus always loves well. Only Jesus always forgives. Only Jesus. So you may be looking at your spouse and you're looking for them to do something that they are not able to do. What is that? Be perfect. They will not and cannot be perfect. So we should cut them some slack, right? And we should realize that Jesus is the ultimate perfect one. We may be looking at our spouse to meet our needs in a way that only Jesus meets those needs. Friends, we should run to Jesus as hard as possible, fully satisfied in Jesus. And when we're fully satisfied in Jesus and we're looking at Jesus, we turn to our spouse and we have compassion and forgiveness and love and respect and submission and all the things that Ephesians 5 says, we cherish and we nourish and we care. Friends, we've got to make sure that our view of marriage, our view of relationships is not more informed by Babylon than by God's word. Right? So if we've just taken our idea of relationships and we just, it's the latest movie or the latest song, and that's how we inform our understanding of our marriage relationship, our dating relationships, we are wrong. The Bible has a lot to say about relationships. We must start there. Wrong expectations and wrong assumptions will lead to much difficulty in relationships. So we must consider God's expectations, not just ours. We must consider whether we are fulfilling God's expectations before we're waiting for our spouse to fulfill our expectations. And guys, I've often had guys say this to me, you seem like you're coming down harder on me than on my wife. And I said, yes, because the Bible comes down harder on you than your wife. Why? Because you're the leader. That's what the Bible says, you're the head. So the wives have to submit and respect. I don't think any wife in here is gonna be like, that's not hard at all, that's super easy for me. That's super hard. But men, what are you supposed to do? Die. That's what the Bible says. Lay down your life. When? Always. When it comes to finances, die. When it comes to what car you buy, die. How many kids you have, die. What house you buy? Die. It's all about King Jesus and what Jesus wants. That's how we live. We live lives that we love our wife and we lay down our life for our wife. We work our tail off to honor Christ, cherish our bride, give good gifts that honor her, treat her like the princess she is, take delight in her and have eyes only for her. Friends, the wedding feast is approaching. Christ is our bridegroom and we are the bride. And man, there is so much application to just thinking about the wedding of Christ and his church. Now the last verse of today's text in verse 10 is an awkward moment. It's just awkward. Now I enjoy awkward moments most of the time. Sometimes I don't when they happen to me. I love them when they happen to other people. This is an awkward moment. Let me just give you the build up in verse 10. Babylon has fallen. The saints rejoice. The 24 elders and four living creatures are worshiping God. The bride is coming. There's this loud voice. Everybody's worshiping God. And then verse 10, John worships an angel. What? What happens here? Look at verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. First off, I just love John's humility that he kept this in there. Like he's the one writing this down. I think I'd be tempted like backspace, 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 backspace. Secondly, we must understand that we are all tempted to worship created things in the place of God. And thirdly, and I think this is a really important application for believers, on the heels of some of our best moments, on the heels of some of our best rejoicing, our hearts are prone to wander. Right on the heels, right on the heels, so this might be Sunday afternoon, you've praised God, you've been with God's people, and you get in an argument with your parents. Oh, it's 1201 and I just forgot what we just sang about. This might be the fight with your spouse on the way home from community group. This is the temptation to lust right after D group. This is that unrighteous anger toward your neighbor that you've been praying for for a year oh, man, I blew it again. Friends, this is the pollution of our sinful hearts. This is the flesh attacking right after something good's happened. This is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Friends, the world, the flesh, and the devil do not nap. They do not take a nap. They are right there to attack. And friends, be encouraged. This is so common. If you think, man, I'm the only person who struggles on Sunday afternoon, or I'm the only person who struggles on Sunday morning to even get toward church. Has anybody ever had the awareness that maybe like the demons are attacking harder on Sunday mornings before God's bringing his bride together to worship him? And you're like, why are the kids mad at all this? Why is there no milk in the fridge? Why are the eggs gone? Why do I hate everybody in my house? What like, and you're just like, what is going on with me? And you're like driving to church, you repenting, and let's just not put on a mask And like coming here like everything's good. No, it's not. You're a mess, I'm a mess. Let's just admit that, right? And let's go to Jesus and say, Jesus, this shows me this Sunday morning that I need you. I needed your cross, I needed your death and your resurrection on my behalf again. Let me be reminded again of your goodness and grace. That's what John needed. He needed this rebuke. The angel calls him back. What's he call him to? Worship God. As a created being, this angel knows that none should bow to him. Friends, we've been seeing people bow in the book of Revelation, bowing to the dragon, bowing to the beast, bowing to the prostitute, and they are loving that worship and adulation. The dragon, the beast, the prostitute, they want it. This angel, nope, quickly quickly says do not do that. I rebuke that. I appreciate this angel. Friends, if we sense that we are being worshipped or we are being put on a pedestal, we must quickly step down and rebuke that false worship. If someone is trying to get from us only what they can get from God, we need to point them toward God and realize, hey, we're going to fail you Do not worship me, worship God. This may be the mom being worshipped by her daughters. This may be the boss being worshipped by his employees. This may be the pastor being worshipped by congregants. We will fail. We fail all the time. Worship God. Do not worship the person beside you. Do not worship your spouse. Do not worship another person. Do not worship a celebrity pastor. Do not worship a celebrity at all. It's bad news and they will fail you because they are sinners who need a savior. Worship God. So this helps us guard our hearts. Like, Lord, where am I worshiping other people, other created things? But also where am I being worshiped in a wrong way and actually kind of liking it? Lord, forgive me that and let me step forward in helping other people realize that is not okay. That dishonors King Jesus. The verse then ends with an angel stating, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brother, and get this, who hold the testimony of Jesus. Now get this, the angel is gonna tell him to worship God, but why? Because he holds to the truth. He holds to the testimony of Jesus. He says, worship God for the testimony, remember he's holding to this, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Another way to say it, the foundational truth of Jesus is the litmus test of prophecy. It's the litmus test of the truth. Don't worship angels or any other created thing. We hold to Jesus. We want Jesus alone. Every prophetic utterance, everything we do, everything we say, it needs to be focused on Jesus, the Lamb who conquered. Because we're invited to this wedding feast, John don't forget that. Don't worship lesser things. And our text today, it speaks of the wedding invitation. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you go to Costco, you have an invitation that happens as you walk the aisles. There's little samples. It's one of the best things about Costco. COVID was awful because Costco turned down their samples, but now they're back. So you go around Costco and you can get little samples of a lesser meal, and they want that lesser little sample, this lesser meal to point you to buying the greater meal or the greater item. Friends, Jesus gives us a sampling of the wedding supper by instituting the Lord's Supper. A small amount of bread pointing to the communion that's smaller right now, but it's a communion with Christ that leads to a fuller communion that we're gonna have with Christ for eternity in the new heavens and new earth. The smaller juice or wine is a foretaste of the redemption we have now in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but there's a fullness and a fuller redemption we're gonna celebrate later. Friends, we're invited to the party it's as if the Lord's Supper is an invitation. Bread and cup, here's your sampling. Forgiveness and redemption, here's your sampling. Union that leads to communion, here's your sampling. Church family, we are welcomed to the party. If you're not a follower of Christ, as we partake in the Lord's Supper in a minute, we're going to have folks go to the five stations in the room who have trusted Christ as their Savior, if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, we welcome you now to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus as your Savior. We'd ask you to hold off now from taking the bread and cup, but we would welcome you to a relationship with Jesus. And the Bible says a relationship with Jesus happens first, and then the baptism that shows our union with Jesus. We go into the water and then out of the water, and then we partake in the meal of communion together. So our band's gonna come up now, and here's what we wanna do for communion today. You can go ahead and stand. We are going to sing to the Lord. We're gonna sing of his mercy to us. What, his, what the groom has done in his death and resurrection. And friends, if you feel too far from God, if you know Jesus, you are not too far. What the song we're gonna sing speaks, we're gonna sing it, but it speaks the truth over us, and that is His mercy is more. His mercy is more. What, you've done bad? You had a hard morning, you had a hard week, you're struggling with hardness of heart. His mercy is more. Come to Christ. And so after we sing, we're gonna come, and I'll come back up here and lead us through, heading to the table. And going to the table, not just in like, oh, I'm a sinner, this is hard but oh, look at what Christ has done. Let's celebrate and rejoice in what Jesus has done. Let's sing together now.